2: I'm John Dankoski. America's elderly population is growing fast, and so is the number of older adults with mental health needs. According to the American Psychological Association, between 20 and 25 percent of adults age 65 and older have a mental health disorder. But reports show just a small fraction are getting the kind of specialized professional care they actually need. Today on Where We Live, we're going to take a closer look at why this is and what's being done to make mental health services more accessible to older Americans. We're also going to find out what some new research says about the relationship between stress and the development of pre-Alzheimer's conditions in seniors. So if you're an older adult or you have an elderly friend or family member, we'd like to hear from you what mental health questions are on your mind today. Call us at 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. You can always comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us in studio is Dr. Jonathan Greenberg, who's a consultation liaison psychiatrist at St. Francis Hospital right here in our neighborhood in Hartford. Dr. Greenberg, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Also with us is Elizabeth Ritter, the commissioner of Connecticut State Department on Aging. Commissioner, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, in a moment, we'll be getting to some of your phone calls at 860-275-7266. Commissioner, I'll start with you on um, mental health conversations that we've had on the air Well, they tend to center on young people and sometimes middle-aged adults. We haven't talked as much about the elderly. Maybe you can talk about how mental health issues are affecting the elderly population that you serve.
3: Thank you very much. Um, And you are correct. So often in the conversation about mental health, we talk about younger people and perhaps people with younger families, parents, uh, and not as often the over-60 generation some of the national statistics are quite frightening, and uh, indications in here in Connecticut uh, from folks that deal with this every day are pretty much indicate that Connecticut kind of parallels the nation. While perhaps a growing number of older Americans are suffering from a variety of mental and behavioral health issues, uh, it's estimated that only about 3% of older adults in Connecticut successfully receive treatment for them.
2: Well, and, and those numbers are a little scary. How do we do as far as the national trends? You say it's scary nationwide. Connecticut does okay as far as this, comparatively speaking?
3: Um, it's, you know, it's interesting. Um, getting this statistical information is very difficult. And uh, both at my agency and over at the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, uh, that's been a great frustration. So we don't really have a lot of hard data. Some of the issues around it, though, have to do with the way aging and older people are sometimes viewed. Uh, There's a certain negativity uh, often associated with it. And perhaps when discussing their physical health, issues that might point to uh, behavioral mental health issues are um, attributed maybe to issues around the physical health a little too often.
2: Are the problems that older folks in Connecticut are having with mental health needs – Are they largely the same ones that younger and middle-aged people have or are we talking about a a different spectrum of problems for the most part?
3: Um, I think they are more complex or more easily hidden by other problems and or other issues. Issues around healthy aging and issues that come with aging. Uh, The incidence with uh, chronic disease, for example, uh, is much higher. Um, among this age, this population, than maybe chronic disease sufferers, sufferers with other ages, and so that's a problem. And there are other issues associated with being uh, an older person too that may make seeking and obtaining treatment a little bit more difficult. Transportation is one of them, and if you perhaps are someone in their seventies. Uh, with an issue with a chronic disease and that needs a variety of treatments, you're going to take care of that physical issue probably first, most especially if something like transportation is a challenge.
2: Uh, Dr. Greenberg, I'll I'll turn to you and and ask about the the specific mental health needs of of older Americans, older Connecticut residents. What are some of the things that are the same that we we all face and what are some of the things that that are quite a bit different?
0: Well, first of all, I think it's important to remark about what's different Uh, Older people differ basically in three ways in the general medical population. They tend to have functional impairments. They're not necessarily sick, but they have problems with hearing, vision, bladder, bowel, chronic pain, uh, mobility issues. So those – and each one of those has its own psychological ramifications, The other is they do tend to have chronic illnesses and to be more ill, also to have more acute illnesses. Um, And thirdly, there's a whole issue of cognitive impairment. After 60, most of us have some memory problems, but, you know, it goes to the full range of those who are demented, who have dementia, which is also a a huge number. If you live to 85, your chance of having dementia is about 50-50, you know, so it's The odds aren't good. I'd like to comment, though. Most of the mental health problems are still treated by the primary care physician, by the internist, by the family uh, practitioner. One of the biggest problems that they, if if you talk to them, in general, but more specifically when it comes to the elderly, is the issue of time. There is such pressure to see so many patients in such a short time. And it simply takes more time to see the elderly. This time isn't reimbursed. It's not taken into account, no matter where you go. I mean, it's very difficult to do something in 10 or 15 minutes. Very often, it takes at least a half an hour. And this not only applies to the general practitioner and the family practice doc, but even in the psychiatric clinics, there's a huge pressure to see people and really too short a time and this is i think for the healthcare reimbursement system as a whole a major challenge because something really has to be done there's no substitute for time and there's no substitute for the doctor patient relationship
2: yeah obviously i think you've both made a, a compelling case that the physical health needs of older people that's going to mean that a primary care doc is just going to have more stuff to talk about in that 15 minutes, and so I think having the conversation about whether or not we can get it to be more than 15 minutes uh, at a time is probably a very good one. But but this sounds like something that is is happening to all ages as well, doctor. That uh, mental health needs, especially at the primary care level often take secondary importance to the physical health needs that somebody is presenting. Is, is that fair to say that sometimes mental health needs aren't necessarily taken as seriously?
0: Well, I, I think it's it's both, really. Um, let me give you an example, a concrete example. Sure. One of the things that's very common that people really don't think about, I people get referred, you know, they're very anxious. They don't want to leave the house, uh, elderly patients. And to find out they were healthy people. There was no pre-morbid history of anxiety. Anxiety disorders tend to be disorders of young people, of youth. When you talk to them, it may be something like, you know, I have bowel urgency or urinary incontinence. I'm really afraid to leave because I'm afraid of having an accident. I'm really too ashamed to get out. Unless you have the time to, to ask them, You never find out that they're really, you're not going to treat that anxiety disorder with anti-anxiety medicine and get a cure. You're going to have to help them deal with their urinary incontinence and their bowel urgency to really help them. Um, Psychiatric disorders are lifelong disorders. They're chronic illnesses and people don't grow out of them. But there are certain psychiatric illnesses that affect particularly uh, patients who are physically ill. Um, physical illness by far beyond psychological or social stressors is a greater stressor than anything. You'll find patients with severe depression, suicidal, who were healthy their entire life, but after an episode of flu or pneumonia, they have a classic what we call a melancholic depression and need treatment. Demented patients, patients with dementia, 40% have some kind of depression that needs to be treated. Many of them have psychosis. They become delusional. Many hallucinate. It provides very difficult challenges.
2: And this can all be exacerbated, of course, Commissioner, by, by isolation that many seniors feel. The people who are living at home, maybe they don't get to get out as much as they used to. They don't get to see people. And we've seen study after study that shows that isolation is not good for long-term mental health.
3: That's absolutely correct. Um, coupled with, as we've already heard, some of the issues around perhaps mobility, uh, things take a little longer. Uh, the recovery from the flu that the doctor was discussing can indeed, uh, it just takes a, takes longer. And often uh, with older people, it's easier to When I say write these off or dismiss perhaps some of these issues as simply issues around aging uh, when indeed there is uh, an underlying uh, more serious issue.
2: Of course, the the doctor mentioned what may happen with people who perhaps are afraid to leave home because they're worried about some sort of health need having to come up. Uh, that's different than than the stigma of seeking mental health care, and the stigma is a very important piece of this, too. With many older uh, adults, you've got people who maybe have gone through their entire lives not seeking any sort of help for, for a depression, and now they may be it. but this is something that, that seems like something they don't want to admit to anybody.
3: Absolutely. Um, many, many, many older people that we all know consider it a point of pride to have lived their lives uh, in their self-defined, uh, completely perhaps healthy state, and there is indeed, indeed that tendency. Uh, we hear over and over again uh, uh, things, uh, for example, anxiety about leaving home or issues, maybe the weather's bad or there's snow or whatever, uh, as just becoming larger and larger or more insurmountable um, barriers. Uh, to getting out into the world and perhaps aggressively or even proactively seeking treatment.
2: Doctor, can you pick up that that thought about stigma? Because that's something that comes through every conversation we have on our program about mental health. it's, It's so important. It's so important at all ages. But is there something specific about the stigma of seeking mental health care for the elderly?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at my name tag, it says staff psychiatrist behavioral health. We're not even called the Department of Psychiatry. Um, psychiatry is a dirty word. Um, they'll have on the, the the medical floors, they'll have the, the cancer floor, the congestive heart failure floor. But psych- psychiatry is generally stigmatized. Nobody likes to call psychiatry, psychiatry, and particularly the older generation. That's correct. Uh, very, there's a tremendous amount of shame involved. in in seeing a psychiatrist. Mm.
3: And for many older people, this was not necessarily part of their education um, as they were bringing up families. These were issues that were not talked about for a very, very long time, kept at home. And uh, we all, as they say, only become more so as we age. And so the barrier of stigma um, is, I think, far greater.
2: Um, in a moment, we're going to take a break. I want to give out our phone number, 860-275-7266, because I want to get some people joining the conversation with some of their stories and thoughts, especially if you have an elderly relative or you are aging yourself and you would like to ask a question. Perhaps you have a thought about seeking mental health treatment. We're talking with the commissioner of the Department uh, on Aging, Elizabeth Ritter, Dr. Jonathan Greenberg from St. Francis Hospital here in Hartford. Um, We've talked about some of the barriers. What are some Connecticut-specific barriers we have right now? I mean, is there something happening in our state that we need to solve or change so that more elderly people can get more mental health services?
3: Um, First, everything that we've talked about uh, poses uh, barriers here in Connecticut. Uh, Traditionally in Connecticut, we are a state of 169 fiercely independent towns, and we're very proud of it. But for many of our residents that don't live in urban areas or the closer suburbs, issues of transportation and getting around are severe. Uh, in addition, our providers, our mental health providers, um, our hospitals where people have access um, to professional help tend to be far more concentrated um, in the closer suburbs and urban areas in Connecticut. And if you Couple that with general issues of mobility for an older person, those are definitely major issues for us.
2: And, Doctor, is there a shortage right now of trained geriatric, geriatric mental health
0: professionals? Well, there certainly is, but we're not going to solve the problem just by training more geriatric psychiatrists. The problem is so huge that really it's, it's still the primary care physician that's going to be delivering most of the care. They certainly need more consultation with geriatric psychiatrists, geriatricians. Most of them are good geriatricians themselves, even though they're not geriatricians. But And they need better better education and training themselves. That's where the bulk of it's going to be delivered, no matter what we say or what we do.
2: Mm. We're talking with Dr. Jonathan Greenberg from St. Francis Hospital, Elizabeth Ritter, the Commissioner of the State Department on Aging. We'll get to some of your calls at 860-275-7266 and talk more about mental health care and the elderly in Connecticut. Hope you can join us. Where We Live, right after this break. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Today we're talking about mental health and the elderly in Connecticut, often our conversations here on our program and Really, in a lot of the media, when it comes to mental health, has to do with young people, middle aged people. It doesn't necessarily have to do with the elderly, but there are some unfortunate statistics about how many elderly people in Connecticut and in America are getting the proper mental health care. So, we're talking with Elizabeth Ritter, who's the Commissioner of Connecticut State Department on Aging, who's here with us, along with Dr. Jonathan Greenberg, uh, who's a consultation liaison psychiatrist at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford. We're going to be bringing in another guest in just a moment, but let's get to some phone calls, including Kathy, who is calling from Manchester. Hello, Kathy. You're on Where We Live. Hello.
4: Thank you for taking my call, Dad. Uh, of course. I have I have a couple of questions. My mother has had um, about those mental illness her whole life. And as she ages, she's right now in about her late 70s. She's had some medical issues, and what's happened is, is mental health has taken a secondary role to her um, primary medical care, and what we've noticed is that her medications I have a fear that there's an interaction with her medications and her mental health um, and the uh, drugs that she's taking for her mental health. And so I guess I have to ask you the question, is that possible? When I've tried to get um, the doctors to look at the mental health side of things, they've actually pushed that aside and is, are only taking care of her uh, medical health. But I think that there's such an interaction between them. I just want to know your opinion on whether those drugs can be um, have interaction mm. and what are the next steps that, as a family member, I could take.
2: Thank you very much, Kathy, for the for the phone call, and I, and I wish you luck. Um, doctor, what, what do you say to Kathy?
0: Well, um All medications have potential interactions. It doesn't necessarily rule out taking the medication, sometimes just the awareness of it, sometimes lowering the dose, you can still use the medication. It's really not correct, though, for a doctor to say, um, if someone's on a medication, this isn't my, my ballpark. It's very important. Everyone is required now to do what's called a medication reconciliation. Everyone has to have a current list of all the medications somebody is on and has to be aware of uh, drug interactions, whether it's the internist or specialist or psychiatrist. So it's really it's really not proper to say, uh, you know, these aren't my drugs. I don't deal with them. Uh, Maybe they don't want to prescribe them or be the primary prescriber, but they do have an obligation to know if there are interactions with the medications that they're taking.
2: Mm. Commissioner, something else that – maybe not something Kathy said, but something in her voice – Kind of leads me to ask you this question. There's also, I think, a, a, a lot of questions for the caregivers of elderly people about how involved they are able to be in the care, the mental health care, the physical health care. And these things are really, really important. I think they're probably even more difficult when it comes to mental health conditions as opposed to just physical health conditions that you can see your your mom or dad experiencing.
3: Absolutely. Um, The whole issue around caregivers and the appropriateness of our ability to be caregivers for folks that need it is something that's an exploding issue here in the state of Connecticut. And uh, we could talk for hours about this, uh, but it's absolutely, and I can hear and feel the stress certainly um, in Kathy's voice, and my heart goes out to you.
2: And again, if you want to join us, 860 275 7266. I want to bring in Ed Mercadante, who is the CEO of Med Options, a behavioral health service provider. It's based in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. He's also a clinical pharmacist by training. Ed, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, John. Hey, tell us about Med Options. What exactly does it do?
5: Well, we, we are a team of clinicians. Um, collaborative team headed up by a physician nurse practitioner clinical psychologist, and clinical social workers and we provide uh, mental health to patients that are largely in assisted living centers and skilled nursing centers throughout the state and throughout the country
2: so so you're going out to people who are are living in, in in locations and you're providing the mental health services to them
5: that's exactly right
2: Um, We were talking about medications a moment ago, these interactions between drugs for physical and mental health. How big a problem is the medications that are being uh, prescribed to people right now, Ed? It's
5: It's a big problem. That's why we approach it with both the medicine side where we have a physician and a nurse practitioner working on the medication management to titrate and keep the patient on an appropriate dose of whatever the Uh, medication is that's prescribed for for a mental health problem, as well as understanding the full complement of other uh, medications they might be on for another issue, whether it be blood pressure, cholesterol, or anything else. Um, And then we combine it with non-pharmacologic treatment protocols with therapists, clinical psychologists, and clinical social workers that provide care in a different way uh, through therapy and testing especially for cognitive disorders and things like that so we we kind of approach it more from a collaborative or integrative approach
2: you, you talk about going out to facilities where seniors are how about those who are who are at home who are able to stay in their own home but maybe can't leave what do you do for them
5: it, it's a huge dilemma uh, in, in this country right now the access to providers is limited um, the way we are approaching it is we've just uh for example launched a center for telehealth we believe that telehealth in communicating through patient to patients and to their families through a telecommunication uh computer portal similar, similar to to a Skype portal um we'll be able to access more and more uh patients in their homes there there's a, an extreme shortage of practitioners in the whole area of mental health and then there is a growing demand of mental health issues, uh, especially amongst the elderly, ranging from simple depression all the way up to advanced Alzheimer's. Uh, Dr. Greenberg, what do
0: we know
2: about
5: the efficacy of,
2: of telehealth uh, systems like this?
0: I don't know much about the efficacy, quite frankly, it's, but I think it's a good idea as part of the, the mixture, I mean, especially for people who are isolated, a, a way to reach people. The only familiarity I have with it is I have grandchildren and do FaceTime with them, and I find that a very efficacious way to stay in touch with them. There's nothing like seeing a person's face. You have to see the face. You have to see the eyes, the facial expression, the body movements. It's not enough to hear the voice.
2: It, um, is this something you want to get, get more into, Commissioner, in, in Connecticut, especially for some of these seniors that are stuck in places where it's not easy to get to a health care provider?
3: Absolutely. Um, Telehealth has been identified for some time now as a real potential in uh, reaching a lot of people on a variety of fronts, if only to keep them connected, uh, but also then to provide the ability for appropriate uh, diagnosis, discussion and diagnosis uh, on the part um, of the receiver. The issues around telehealth, though, quite honestly, in Connecticut are still issues that need a lot of work. Uh, we need to look at our reimbursement structure for this. We need to look at ways to make it easier to make this available to people who are in their homes.
2: Yeah, Ed. Very quickly, can you just talk about some of those barriers, if you would?
5: Uh, I agree totally with the commissioner. Um, right now, the reimbursement structure is really geared around rural areas and the access to patients' care through a telehealth portal only in those rural areas. So we have to address that as, as a nation and as a state, um, but. There are very much barriers on that, but frankly, the, the technology is, is is a lot of people are really going forward on the technology and, and it's already being used in primary care practice on telehealth and we think that using it in the mental health area also breaks down the other issue that Dr. Greenberg was referring to, which is the stigma of access to care. Um, so we're really bullish on going forward with telehealth and, and kind of leading the nation in the area, and we're right here in the state of Connecticut.
2: Ed Mercadante from Med Options. They're based in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. Thank you so much, Ed, for joining us. I appreciate it.
5: Sure. Thanks, John.
2: I, I want to turn to uh, Kat Reimers calling in from Hartford. Hi there, Kat. Hi. How are you? Good, good. What's on your mind? We've got a couple minutes here before the break. I'd like to hear what you folks are doing. You're at Hartford HealthCare, if I'm right. Kat, are you there?
4: I am. I'm sorry. Having a little bit of a hard time hearing you.
2: Th- that's okay. What's on your mind?
4: Well, I did want to talk a little bit about a program that uh, we're doing at Hartford Healthcare that I think others are doing as well, but I think is really promising for this, and that is putting behavioral health uh, care specialists into primary care practices. So when somebody comes in to see their primary care physician, uh, there's a behavioral health specialist in the practice that can see them at the same time.
2: Hmm. And is this something that's widely done around the state right now, Kat?
4: Um, well, we're starting it at Hartford HealthCare. We've got uh, it going in about six practices. We plan to add it to another six and move it as quickly as we can into all the practices because it seems to be at the very early stages having some pretty good outcomes.
2: Kat uh, Remy from Hartford HealthCare, thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. And, Commissioner, to talk about that piece of it because this is another layer, something that uh, a hospital system is, is trying to do, get more uh, folks providing these services in with a primary care physician.
3: Absolutely. And as you've already heard t- today, that would be um, is an excellent opportunity for some of the barriers and problems, particularly that older people face. Um, at My agency at the State Department on Aging, we've bu- begun a couple of initiatives to work to strengthen the opportunities to bring those services out to community providers. And there's uh, opportunities there both to make community providers aware of these and steer appropriately uh, their folks to places where they can receive this help in a coordinated manner in a collaborative manner, which is what Pat Reamer is talking about, um, as well as work to identify places where we most need this.
2: Uh, we're talking with Elizabeth Ritter, who's Commissioner of Connecticut State Department on Aging, and Dr. Jonathan Greenberg. Consultation liaison on at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford. We're going to be talking about a new study having to do with stress stress and pre-Alzheimer's conditions. We're going to be taking more of your phone calls at 860-275-7266 about the elderly and mental health care. Right now, I'm going to turn to some of my friends in the other room. They're going to Ask for some of your dollars to help pay for all of this great programming on WNPR, programming that brings you conversations like this one, news and information all throughout the day. That's what we're doing here this week on WNPR. Hope you can join us. We'll be right back where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We'll be joined by David Collins from the Day of New London, Suzanne Bates from the Yankee Institute for Public Policy, and, of course, our own Colin McEnroe. There's a lot to talk about in the news this week, including layoffs that have begun at the state level. We'll be talking about that and more. Some of the budget follies at the state capitol that's coming up on tomorrow's Where We Live. Today, we're talking about mental health and the elderly with Elizabeth Ritter, who's the commissioner of Connecticut State Department on Aging. I should ask you before we continue, uh, Commissioner Ritter, how have the projected cuts to state government, the cuts that we've already seen happening over the course of the last year or so because of uh, Recisions because of budget deficits, how they affected your agency, and the overall problem we're talking about here, which is mental health and the elderly.
3: Oh, Thank you for that question, uh, and it's a difficult time. We're all working our way through it. At the State Department on Aging, uh, we get about 70-some percent of our funding from the federal government through the Federal Older Americans Act. It's matched with state funding thus far wisely. Uh, we have not had problems with that, with either the match or with the federal government. The state understands how smart it is to take some money to get a whole lot more money from the federal government to run our programs. Uh, however, we also have general fund funded programs and have had some issues, have had cuts to some of those. The most widely discussed it, discussed has been uh, respite programs for caregivers, uh, most commonly for people with Alzheimer's and related dementias. So it's been a bit of a struggle. Our folks over at the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services uh, have had a lot more on their plate to deal with, and um, I know the discussions are ongoing uh, because of the uh, discussions that we're having now and the understanding of the need.
2: And we're going to get some more of your phone calls here at eight six zero two seven five seven two six six as we talk about the availability of mental health care for the elderly. Uh, there's a new study from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Montefiore Health System that shows you could be at greater risk for developing a pre-Alzheimer's condition called mild cognitive impairment if you are stressed out. Dr. Richard Lipton is the study's senior author and professor of neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He joins us by phone to talk to us for a few minutes. Uh, Dr. Lipton, welcome to where we live.
1: Well, thank you. Happy to be here.
2: Maybe you could explain what you and your colleagues were looking at in the study.
1: Sure. So we have a community-based study where we enroll a representative sample of people who live in the Bronx over the age of 70 and follow them every year with tests of physical health, mental health, and cognitive ability. And what we found was that people who had high levels of stress who had difficulty coping with the demands of their lives were approximately twice as likely to develop mild cognitive impairment, this form first of Alzheimer's or other dementias, in comparison with those who had lower levels of stress.
2: Are these folks who are exhibiting a certain level of stress at a particular point in time in their lives, or are these folks who have been experiencing high stress levels for maybe years or decades?
1: Well, yeah, so that's a great question. So the way... So an earlier study had showed that the personality trait, neuroticism, also predicted the development of MCI and dementia, and we measure stress in a particular month every year, but we think that people who have a tendency to have difficulty coping with their lives one year also have difficulty coping with the events in their lives the next year, so it's, I think more a chronic thing than a particular life event.
2: Could you talk to us more about the the precursor of this mild cognitive impairment and its relationship to full-blown Alzheimer's disease and, and when that uh, begins to be experienced by, by seniors?
1: Sure. So we've followed people till they develop Alzheimer's dementia over many, many years, and what we see in our study is that about seven years before Alzheimer's, dementia is diagnosed, people enter a period of accelerated decline in memory. And about three years after that period of accelerated memory decline, they meet the standard criteria for mild cognitive impairment. So so that's a scary thing, but also a good news thing, because it means that before full-blown dementia develops, before people have impairments that make it difficult for them to engage in their daily activity, we can flag people at high risk and that creates a window of opportunity for intervention.
2: I've been reading a lot over the course of the last couple years, doctor, about how important sleep is to prevent Alzheimer's disease. I guess I'm wondering if, if stress has anything to do with people not sleeping properly and if that has any correlation here.
1: Yeah, so that's, that's a great question, and so we study a number. So our interest really is in remediable risk factors for Alzheimer's disease in general, which, which means risk factors that you can do something about. And we study pain, stress, and sleep fragmentation in, their study, in our study, and there's evidence that all three of those things travel together and we're in the process of trying to tease apart the contribution of those challenges now, the good news is that you know if you're in pain that may make you feel more stressed, that may result in sleep fragmentation. so all these factors are interrelated, but behavioral interventions that improve stress, pain, and sleep overlap to a considerable degree, so even though they're fellow travelers it may be possible to address them simultaneously.
2: Dr. Richard Lipton is professor of neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine talking about this very interesting study about stress and pre-Alzheimer's conditions. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm wondering, Dr. Jonathan Greenberg from uh, St. Francis Hospital, how important this question of stress in elderly people is when it comes to some of the mental health conditions and behavioral health conditions we're talking about here.
0: Well, there's no life without stress, so everyone experiences stress. I think the elderly have more stress, quite frankly, just because um, of their impairments, functional impairments, their medical issues. It's a time of loss, losing a spouse, losing a brother or a sister, being more isolated in the community. So there's a lot of stress. I have to say, though, that cognitive impairment uh, occurs with anybody under stress, Uh, the the common example is someone's in a rush, they have too many things to do. Where have I put my keys? Where have I put my keys? You know, there's an example of a cognitive impairment (laughs) just with stress. So all stress can cause cognitive impairment, usually problems with attention and concentration. I think it would be fascinating to see whether this study really shows or if it can be replicated that that kind of stress actually is a precursor to dementia overall.
2: I want to get some phone calls. Ron's calling from Prospect. Hi, Ron, go ahead. Yeah,
6: good morning. Um, I've been a caregiver for my mother for 20 years. She's currently 97. We, uh, at this point in time, uh, the last three years or so, we have her in assisted living in a memory care unit. Um, Gosh, I don't know where to start. Um, One of the things that that I found around uh, her particular case is a lot of the the folks that... um, uh, take care of the medications tend to over prescribe and things get confused such as a, a UTI very much mimicking you know a more severe case of dementia so up goes the uh, the dementia medications when in reality uh, the situation isn't a dementia situation at all and the other thing is uh, it the, the shocking cost of uh, the care of folks like this just in an assisted living environment memory care, you're looking at $7,000 a month. And as we transition into nursing home memory care, it's $15,000 a month. And my third point being that I'm in my late 60s, um, I'd really like to see an effort similar to uh, smoking and cancer done around uh, boomers and uh, things that that we can do to uh, prevent uh, or at least postpone dementia.
2: Mm. Ron, first of all, thank you very much for your phone call. And I will say, you know, 20 years of being a caregiver seems to have gotten, Ron, an awful lot of perspective and an awful, an awful lot of expertise. And, and, Commissioner, maybe you can comment on some of the things that, that he just said. But also, very importantly, we're talking about a lot of people who have been forced into being experts in this stuff. I mean, Ron just said all the things that the doctor said earlier where, you know, people are prescribing mom medicine for the wrong things because they're not exactly sure what's going on and there's physical and there's mental health conditions happening at the same time. How do you address somebody like Ron who's got this story and a a mother, God bless her, 97 years old?
3: Absolutely, Ron. My heart goes out to you. Um, I took care of my mother not for 20 years. So, uh, as I said, my heart goes out to you, and your story is so very familiar. I spoke a little bit earlier about what might be happening um around caregivers, and particularly as we look at our state. Connecticut is a state that is the older portion of our population is increasing faster than any other part of our population. And indeed, by 2030, is going to be 30% of our state, um, according to the census estimates. That means we will need care. And you are exactly correct in considering and being concerned about things that people can be doing to take better care of themselves when they can so that later on they don't require as much care from caregiving. Uh, one of the other things to think about in conjunction with that, though, is that indeed, as a result of an excellent or Better, however you choose to typify it, um, medical services, many, many, many of us are living to much greater ages than we used to.
2: Living to much greater ages, and in, in the case of Ron, uh, living to an age himself. So he's got a mother who's 97 who's been caring for, for 20 years, and he's in his upper 60s. And just a couple years from now, we're going to be talking about Ron as one of these elders who we need. And And there's a cycle that is sort of brand new in American life, right? elderly caregivers taking care of very elderly parents
3: absolutely we used to call people the sandwich generation but now it's a double-decker or a club sandwich generation because there's a generation or two possibly below Ron
2: I want to get to William in Litchfield go ahead William you're on where we live yes good morning thanks
7: for taking my call yeah. I'm very interested in a topic that hasn't been addressed at all Uh, I'm past uh, Social Security age, but have taken care of uh, two elderly parents, both of whom are deceased, lived almost till their 90s. Uh, And there was a way in which I cared for them and which became a kind of standard, uh, which I think had a lot to do with preventing mostly depression and uh, difficulty, stress and sadness in the end of their lives. And it's something that takes place in most other cultures, particularly in Asia. Uh, The conversation started to make me a little bit depressed because it seems to be from the neck up, and there's a lot of conversations about medication. What about somatic therapies? What about uh, qigong and tai chi? Why are the elderly people in so many other cultures active and busy in their bodies? Uh, Maybe that's one of the reasons why they don't have as much psychological care. I happen to run an agency in Connecticut where we do a Caring for the Caregivers workshop and a program, and work very closely with stress, distress, and trauma issues in people facing the end of life. Uh, and we do physical work. We do Qigong and Tai Chi classes. We do play shops. We do all kinds of things that get people in their body.
2: Well, well, well William, I'm going to, thank you very much for that, because I want to put that to Dr. Greenberg here, because, I mean, obviously physical health goes along with mental health. That's what we've been talking about from the start. And so getting people up and moving in the way that William suggests is something that
0: can help. Well, I think there are other issues, though, and it may not be the alternative therapies that are helping. It may be that these are intact families. We have fewer intact families in the United States, Uh, especially if you go into the inner city. You know, you see it's very, I wouldn't say rare, but it's not that common to find intact families. The very fact that there's a family structure in place that's able to do that, that's able to perform those things. The caring community, The there used to be more involvement, let's say, in church and synagogue. There's been a decline in religion in this country. And very often, those were the main areas where people would get help from the community. Um, we have um, not a very healthy lifestyle in this community. We have a lot of uh, obesity. Um, there's much less obesity in Asia. And uh, many fewer uh, problems, let's say, with drugs and alcohol than we have in the United States.
2: Well, I, and I'll just say, just to, to William's point, though, and maybe there's less obesity because people are up and moving around and doing Tai Chi. We, we just have a minute left, and I, I have to ask Commissioner Ritter about this. We were talking about this during a the break. There's some things that Medicare pays for and doesn't ca- pay for that kind of are just r- ridiculous. Can you just walk us through one, one of these things that we were talking about off air? Because I think it's really important for people to know that the system doesn't always help us do the best thing for elders.
3: You're correct. Correct, John. Um, One of the problems, a big problem, has to do with the way Medicare reimburses um, for appointments. And particularly for the population and the problems we're talking about, you cannot always or actually you can rarely get reimbursement if a patient visits, say, their primary care physician and has at the same time an appointment um, to see somebody about their mental or behavioral health. So that
2: would, that would make sense. It would be one trip for the, for the elderly person. Correct. But indeed, it, you actually can't get them both reimbursed.
3: It makes absolutely no sense when you understand the population that we're talking about now.
2: Okay, so one of those things that stands in our way here, Elizabeth Ritter is Commissioner of Connecticut State Department on Aging. Obviously, a lot more to talk about. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks also to Dr. Jonathan Greenberg, consultation liaison psychiatrist at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford. Thank you, doctor, for your time. Continue this conversation online. Go to wnpr.org slash where we live. Our program produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Eyes with Kion Wolf, Heather Brandon, and Katie Tolarski. I'm John Dankowski. This is Where We Live.